Hello and welcome to the Wheel of Time After Time, the TV review show for fans who never read the books, with me, fantasy author Sean Paul Stevens. And joining me from County Cork, somewhere on a mountain in Ireland, is high fantasy fanatic and book club supremo Ray. Hello Ray. Hello everybody. Also joining us over the pond in the great US of A from Savannah, Georgia, is nurse and board game addict Matthew. Hello, everyone. Mostly in England that we tried to escape from and came over here for, but nice meeting you. <laughs> it was a good attempt. And <laughs> lastly, joining us from Bournemouth in the UK, down the road from me in Brighton, is all-round fantasy nerd Mark. Hello, Mark. Hello, guys. Okay, so today we're talking about episode two of The Wheel of Time. In a White Cloak encampment, the White Cloaks burn an Aes Sedai. The two rivers' villagers, Matt, Egwen, Rand and Perrin, flee with Moraine and Lan from pursuing Trollocs and Evade. They flee across the ferry at Taran's Ferry, and to prevent the Trollocs from following, Moraine uses the One Power to sink the ferry, incidentally killing the ferrymen, which disturbs the villagers. Along their journey to Tar Valon, Egwen learns she has the potential to channel. Perrin encounters wolves, the villagers have disturbing dreams about the Dark One, Balzalamon, murdered that one, and mistrust and tension between Moraine and the villagers grow. Moraine grows more weary and exhausted from her injury, and when Trollocs catch up, Lan makes the hasty decision to have them enter Shadar Lagoth. The group is attacked and separated by Mashanda, the twisted evil that inhabits the city. The group is separated and disoriented. Nina Eve is revealed to be alive and confronts Lan about the villagers. Okay, so it's all kicked off now. We're into episode two. We've gone through all the boring stuff, learning all the millions of characters, blah, blah, blah. Now we can get into some action. Marks out of 10 for episode two. Well, for your pronunciations, I'm going to give you about six out of ten. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> so, it's fine. I know, it's great. It's like we were saying before, it's like, you introduce these characters, these places, these words, and unless you're really listening, I found in this episode, you kind of miss them. Uh, but yeah, Shadar Logoth, or as they said, Shadar Logoth. I was like, okay, apparently I don't know how to pronounce these names anymore. <laughs> Well, that's how it's written. S-H-A-D-A-R. Shadar. Um, is that an actual place in the books? Yes, it is. And it's a fantastic place. And I actually loved the way it was represented. I would have liked to see more of it um, and have them experience it a little bit more because in the books, it's there's a, there's a lot more going for it. And it sets up Matt's character perfectly, actually. I find as well that I'm starting to see these characters more mature than I thought they would be. I, I imagined them to be coming of age as in 15, 16 years old. But I think we are told that they are 20. And I think that might actually be in the first episode that we're kind of told that they're around 20 and Nynaeve is 26, 27. So there's there's a lot of characterization that changes because they're introduced as much more adults than I would be used to. Yeah, the whole adultification of the characters is an interesting point, I think. Certainly the way that characters are represented in the 90s compared to now in books has changed quite a lot, I think. 
Well, if you consider the span of time that these books go over, it's kind of like Lord of the Rings. So it'll be interesting to see how they handle the fact that their characters started at 20 years old and 26 years old and to see see that aspect of maturity rather than 15, 16 year olds and then that aspect of maturity. So I think characters might go through a lot more mid-teens to 20s than they would say from 20s up to 30s. I think. Oh, yeah. But isn't that you know you take this as every fantasy book ever written isn't it farm boy young young naive city rat gets dragged out of their home on a quest with these mature older people who know what's going on and that's eddings through and through isn't it I mean, <laughs> you know this is the problem it's it's falling into i have seen this everywhere before isn't that partly because it's it comes from the 90s so it's influenced everything that we've known for the last 20 years it's kind of unfair, in a way, to Robert Jordan to be making it now. Yeah. <laughs> Which came first, the king or the egg? You know, it's one of those yeah, things yeah. you start. It happens in sci-fi as well. You're like, oh, okay, here we go. People want to become ethereal gases that connect to a computer network. Seen it a million times, and then you're like, wait, no, actually, he was the first person to do it. <laughs> so yeah. it's it's still in the execution as well, isn't it? You know, I mean, the city that you love portrayed on there it just seemed like a run-of-the-mill we go to an empty city there's some lurking evil and now we've got split up oh <laughs> great now we've got the, the story going off in different directions more to concentrate on when it we still haven't really got a handle on the characters they're introducing new characters yeah i'm talking myself you... i liking it <laughs> what did you think <laughs> of, of shadar lagoth matthew i like this episode a lot more than the first episode you got the feeling when they did the big like overhead shot of the white coat campment that this this is they're like yeah this is high fantasy this isn't my exact thoughts to, to like what Maria's been saying like this is high fantasy it's clearly not grim dark those are those are some really nice tents they have there and everything is white <laughs> and you would never see that in 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 Game of Thrones <laughs> and. I wrote down his name because I looked it up and then I was I was really taken the actor. I don't know his character's name, but obviously the most evil of the white coats, um, Abdul Sialis. Oh, he was the no, questioner. I'm yeah. And I'm sorry if I'm slaughtering his name, but I'm like, that guy's fascinating. I would watch an entire television show about him. He and then how he relates to his other people in his order. Like there's there there was definite hints of ranks and agenda. I'm like that that's that right there. I'm interested in. I would like to see more of him. And then also the uh, the the haunted city was was a good bit too. And you know one of my big problems with the series is Matt, who may be my favorite name, character because of his name, wakes up in the middle of the night randomly, goes and finds a, a dagger and just picks it up and carries it along. And I'm like, come on. Clearly, this this dagger means something. You're not giving me any hints of its significance, and there's no cost to it. And I'm just gonna go out on a limb and say that it's cursed because it came from a cursed city, and it's going to maybe be an albatross around his neck. But there's no. He didn't pick it up because he needed it. He he didn't use it. It's just it's. I, I'm like it's one of those moments. I'm like okay, so the book readers know what this is, and I don't, and you don't really care enough to explain it to me. Yeah, I, you actually had the same reaction my husband did uh, when he watched it. He was like, "It's like the heron on the heron mark sword. It was like center 
camera like this is important and then it wasn't so no and it is important it actually is a big big part of who matters as a character uh so yeah it's surprising to see everyone have the same reaction we know it's important but can you give me a bit more information please Mm. yeah yeah they, they're they're rattling through showing you things very quick we've got to get them this this is important in the book we've got to show them that and we've got to show them this and they need to do this this is a big scene in the book so we've got to include that but we haven't got the we've got an hour which is actually a long time in a, an hour long episode of something we're so used to 40 minutes 45 minutes an hour is quite a long time white cloaks really quite interesting the dynamic between um the guy you were speaking about, Matt, and the other leadership character is really good. They're kind of, there's a good cop, bad cop, but are they both bad cops really, but one's more bad cop uh, vibe going on. But who are they? Ray, could you just give us a hint as to the connection between, or how they relate, the White Cloaks and, and the Aes Sedai, without any spoilers, obviously? Well, if it wasn't obvious, they're the White Coats are zealots. They're very much, uh, you've, you probably hear throughout the show, may the light be on you, or uh, it's kind of like the way we would say things like, and apologies to, to anybody here, but you would say things like, God damn it, or something like that. Here, light would be the equivalent in this world. You would say, oh, for light's sake, or something. So you, you, what you're looking at here is um, the purity of them, the fact that all of their tents are white, their everything is white. And interesting is that scene that where your man, the questioner is eating and he eats the bird in one go and it messes his mouth. Uh, and so you've given the indication that this food is messy, but it doesn't touch his vestments at all. You know, he's very, he goes over to the ice die. He comes back from that with nothing on him. So they are brought to you as these are pure, these are meant to be good, but you've got something like the Aes Sedai being burnt at the stake. It's one of those things where they're, they're trying to tell you that the Aes Sedai are there for the betterment of the world because you're introduced to Moraine saving the village in episode one, but then you are shown these guys, these white cloaks, children of the light, and you're shown them as immediately being the enemies of the Aes Sedai. So I like how they do that because it puts you on the off foot. You're like, wait, so who is the good guys? Who are, sorry, who are the good guys? Uh, and you're kind of shown this kind of juxtaposition between the two of them. And it's also interesting. You're, you're shown that the Aes Sedai have a, a, a relationship with colour. I think uh, we're shown the red and we're shown Moraine, who's quite clearly blue because she's, you know, favourite colour. She doesn't wear anything else. And then you're shown the children of the light, which from an artist's point of view, white is every color. All colors make white. And you're shown this. So I actually, episode two, I'm right there. It's a good one for me. I really enjoyed it. And having the, they introduced the children of the light perfectly, to be fair with you. They really okay, did. And the children of light are the white cloaks. They are, yeah, the children of the light. So their ranks would be things like child something. So I would be, I, God, I can't even think, I don't think there's women in there. I think the women are Aes Sedai. All women are witches. So you'd be called Child Matthew, Child Mark. Uh, that, that would be the way it's, way it's introduced. So I did like that. Very shocking, very punch in the face at the start of the episode. So I like that. One thing that I don't get, the Aes Sedai, they basically have all the magic. Is that correct? Yes, if you ignore the fact that some men can channel, even though they, sh they 
uh, it's a, the the taint. We were introduced yeah. to this concept of men shouldn't be able to do that. So how how are the white cloaks able to stand against the Aes Sedai then? Surely the Aes Sedai will just come along and smash them with some some hand wavy. Are we introduced to the three oaths in this one? I think we are. Um, Moraine and Egwene are in the forest together and they're introduced to channeling. So the three oaths are basically Aes Sedai can only protect themselves or their sisters or fight the dark. Uh, basically, the children of the light are just zealots. They're just normal fellas. Um, so they they can't attack these people unless there's an actual physical altercation that's threatening the life of the Aes Sedai. So it's and and personally, I think that shows that the Aes Sedai are a little bit bigger than they are. Like the children of the light are pests. <laughs> so that's my opinion. What did you think of, Matthew, of the interplay between the White Cloaks and the Aes Sedai? It's one of those things, I, you know you're seeing something, and I, I feel like that the Abdullah Salas character is going to have a fairly significant role to play at some point in the future, although probably not for many, many episodes would be my guess. But it was an interesting moment, and I, I liked it. It worked for me because it wasn't. it showed them that they were that there was some difference in their ranks and that they also were, um, they're not just pointless evil people running around killing and showing their power because they aren't. And I thought it was a nice character beat to have the uh, captain say like, well, normally we wouldn't tell you to go to an Aes Sedai, but you need to do that to get that healed. I thought that was, a, it was a nice character moment and it, and it definitely showed the world and it, and it gave nuance to the relationship between this villain and uh, these villainous people and who I'm guessing are the heroic female order of light defenders. Um, it was a really, it was a really good moment and it was done very quickly. And I love the moment where the questioner grabs his uh, chain and that's how he gets his attention to speak. That was there's a lot of little smart things in that whole thing. It, it was as deep as I was hoping it would be from something with this kind of source material. Let's talk about Nina Eve, because we all thought she was dead in episode one, but amazingly, she reappears. Some might say confusingly for people that haven't read the books. And then we're suddenly starting to think, oh, she maybe she's an important character after all. She certainly seems quite tough. Is she a tough character, would you say, from the books, Ray? Uh, yeah, Nineveh is my character i absolutely adore Nynaeve because she's attitude's the wrong word she's sarcastic she doesn't take crap she's straight to the point they approach the Nynaeve character slightly different in the way she gets rolled into the group um she's actually in the group in the book before we see her in the uh, tv show i will say again in this episode they cut a whole chunk out that maybe some purists would say was very important what they did with the episode worked uh, but it's that chunk that we see naive come in i liked the way they did it this time round her background is as a forest woman it's a big thing for her character is that she was taught all of this as she was the a daughter and the family wanted a son. So the fact that she can sneak up on Elan Mandragoran, that's a really big sort of pin in the character profile sheet for Nynaeve. Mark, like Nynaeve? Ah. <laughs> for the for the <laughs> listeners, Mark Mark raises um, his shoulders. Um 
I don't dislike. I just none of the characters have stood out. I just feel she's a bit annoying. I don't know. I mean, I, I suspect she'll have a massive part to play, and, be, and characters can evolve and change. And I'm happy to accept that and change my opinion of characters. But as I said earlier, and I'll say again, at the moment, I think the only one who intrigues me is Lan. Okay. Uh, the white, the white guys in the white cloaks. But I think they would have been better off just slowing it all down. Let's just talk quickly about the Trollocs because we haven't really covered them from episode one. Now, one of my friends said when he read the books, he didn't call them Trollocs, he called them Trollocs. And I don't know if this is an expression that you're familiar with in America, Matthew, but there's an English word called bollocks that sounds very <laughs> remarkably like Trollocs, and I couldn't get it out of my mind. <laughs> I had a different problem, and I don't know if it was the way they recorded the sound, but every time they said it, or some of the characters said it, it sounded like Trollops. <laughs> okay, ah, that's, that's funny. <laughs> Yeah, I heard but, that once or twice too. But Matthew made a, a, a great point in the previous episode there. He called them Urukai, and uh. you're not actually that far from the truth, because the the the, the law behind a trolloc is it's the uh, the meeting of man and animal. It's uh, an experiment that, that that was done to create these things, just like the Urukai. Obviously, the Urukai were uh, were created. It's, you know, with slightly different motivations, but uh, they really are. The, the books described them in a way that made me really excited to see how the TV show was going to deal with it. Am I OK, happy with the way they are doing it? I want to see more of them. Maybe we're going to see a little bit more and we're going to get that Trolloc lore come in over the course of seeing these these characters appear in episodes. But I have to say I'm okay with it. It didn't feel like it wasn't a Doctor Who moment. You know, it wasn't some guy in a rubber mask. It didn't feel like that. Um, so I, I, I like the Trollocs, I have to say. Big fan of them. They just kind of feel like standard fantasy evil guy army thing. I, I mean, they look, they've got that sort of the backwards hoof feet. And I mean, it's just... It seems like something I've seen before. And again, maybe this is unfair to source material that started out 30 years ago and it's been pilfered since. But I, I mean, they, they, it feels very forgettable to me. And the way that they kind of surround the um, fade in this story, just it, it, I'm like, yeah, this feels like a bunch of ring race and Yurikai here. Like it feels like things we've seen before. And I'm sure it had to be hard because if they're not terrifying, it doesn't work. And there's so many of them. And again, watching that 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 scene on the on the thing, I'm like, they they sent one guy after Rand and his dad. It seems like you just they moved in packs. It seems so out of character then that there's a hundred of them on the riverside, and one guy's like, "Don't worry, I'll go kill the ginger kid." Just it, I, I'm unimpressed with them, and I, I hope it kind of evolves into something more interesting. I think they did them a disservice, actually. Now Trollocs are not in any way intelligent. That's that's not their thing. It's they don't work independent. You're right, they're in packs. Our um, mouth of Sauron ripoff that we have that runs around the fade. He um, he controls them, but through force of will. That's I, and I'm not too sure if we get that yet in the episode that there is. He's like the the man behind them, pushing them, making them do something that they don't want I, to do. I think so. Or the scene where they won't cross the water. Um... They, they said mm. he can get them to do anything, but not cross. Ah, not, not there cross we go. The okay. Water, so, 
Uh, yeah. yeah. So with the Trollocs, I they've done them a disservice because in the books they are guided a little bit more specifically. It's why I didn't why the battle in the first episode didn't really sit well with me is because, like you say, just the one fella turning up at Rand's house. It it was they knew what they were doing, and it seemed that the TV show showed them as just coming in and killing. they actually know what they're doing. And I think in episode two, we get that because they are pursuing them. They are, Moraine says, we have to leave, otherwise they will still keep coming. So you're kind of introduced to the idea that they they are there and they're after something specifically. Uh, But it's just handled a little bit better in the book, though. And is a fade like a kind of sorcerer that's controlling them through using the one power? No, it's, um, again, there's probably someone screaming at this while I'm saying it, but as I understand it, and I, I'm trying to remember, is that the they're all experiments. They're all like Isengard, Urukai, and Orcs and everything. It's The Fade is the successful one. <laughs> it's oh, the one oh. that worked a little bit better. <laughs> so, uh, so yeah, I, I said the mouth of Sauron jokingly because they pretty much... Uh, are the, the 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 presence of the dark one on land um uh, but there's scholars of robert jordan's wheel of time out there and a few of them are actually uh consultants on the tv show so that they've got so much more knowledge about the law but that's the way i see it in layman's terms so the fade is basically like a queen bee and the products are like the bees <laughs> To a certain extent, yeah. <laughs> go there and do this. Okay, and off they go. That seems a bit clearer in my mind now. And that's about all the time we have this time. So we'll see you next time for more After Time.